You're listening to the Today in the Word radio podcast. This week, we bring you a five-part series of creation messages that John Whitcomb Jr. presented at Winona Lake Bible Conference 1966. John Whitcomb Jr. was a professor of Old Testament at Grace Theological Seminary. Now, here is John Whitcomb Jr. on Today in the Word radio. We greet you, friends, in the name of our wonderful Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. The book of Genesis chapter 1 is really quite specific as to the methods God employed in bringing this world into existence, and especially the world of living things. Genesis tells us that the order of events was quite different than that which we might expect, naturally speaking, namely that all varieties of plant life, including fruit trees, appeared first, and then only later, marine creatures. Secondly, that these living things appeared suddenly, full-grown, with an apparent appearance of age, at least, a superficial appearance of age, such as, for example, was true in the launching of the human race, in the creation of Adam and Eve. And then we saw in the third place that the book of Genesis teaches a creation of a great multitude of living things. When God first spoke life into the oceans of this planet Earth, we may not be absolutely certain as to the relationship between Genesis kinds and the modern species that taxonomists classify in the world of living things, but Leviticus chapter 11 gives us a more detailed commentary on what the different kinds of living things were in the world that uh, Moses was acquainted with. In the fourth place, we saw that the Bible does put very strict limits on the possibilities of change that can occur in living things. It's true that God created animals and plants with a vast potentiality for variation into various races or breeds through time. But nevertheless, there are strict limits to this as enunciated by that phrase in the book of Genesis, ten times repeated, that these living things were to reproduce after their kind. Modern scientism, that is, in a sense, a worldview characteristic today of most secular scientists, uh, repudiates of necessity this biblical doctrine of creation because science using its own techniques and methods and instruments and presuppositions, must interpret the world strictly in terms of the scientific method. They repudiate the revelation of the Word of God on this subject. But nevertheless, it is quite obvious, after a hundred years of investigation since the publication of Darwin's work, The Origin of Species, that the theory of evolution has utterly failed to come to terms with the facts of nature. That is to say, many leading scientists today are admitting that there is no real evidence that basic kinds of living things have evolved from a single-celled creature billions of years ago. May I call your attention, for example, to a recent book published in England by a leading scientist Dr. G. A. Kerkut of the Department of Physiology and Biochemistry at the University of Southampton, 
entitled Implications of Evolution. In this rather technical book, Dr. Kerkut, who apparently is not appealing to the inspiration of the Word of God or to the biblical view of creation, insists that the theory of evolution has absolutely failed to explain the origin of any of the basic kinds of living things in the world. He tells us that the only way that a person can take evolution seriously is by faith, that actually evolution is science fiction, that those who adhere to it do so in a realm of blindness, and that if revelation, according to the Christian, is the basis of his position, then the evolutionist must appeal to revelation too, because there are no facts in science to which he can appeal. He tells us that there are gaps, there are failures, there are doubts that absolutely permeate the whole realm of evolutionary theory today. A new book has been published entitled, Why Scientists Accept Evolution, written by Drs. Robert T. Clark and James D. Bales. And the entire thesis of this book is that the leading proponents of evolution from the days of uh, Charles Darwin to the present, the basic reason for their acceptance of this theory is theological. That is, having repudiated the word of God and the supernatural explanation of the origin of the world, by necessity, they must find some other alternative view. It is not the facts of science that force them to the theory of evolution, but a desperate desire to find some rational explanation that does not force them into the supernaturalism of the book of Genesis, a remarkable volume. Let me illustrate the dilemma that confronts evolutionists today. Not very many people are aware of the fact that there is a deep cleavage or split that has taken place in the world of science with regard to this basic question of how things have come into existence. Most scientists today accept what we call the neo-Darwinian view, namely that different types of living things have come into existence gradually through vast periods of time. Tiny changes in the organisms accumulated through millions of years. In other words, the first birds appeared by means of a gradual change that took place in reptiles, whereby they began to sprout wings, and uh, over hundreds of thousands of years, these potential incipient wings grew bigger and bigger until finally the creature was able to fly. Now, of course, this has raised many, many serious problems. In the first place, what would make this creature produce incipient wings? The very existence of wings that were not capable of uh, enabling the animal to fly would be a hindrance to him, and he would be eliminated in the struggle for existence. There is no evidence whatever in genetics that such changes can take place in living creatures, and there is no evidence in the fossil record 
in the crust of the earth that any half reptiles, half birds ever existed. It's for this reason that a number of scientists have abandoned the neo-Darwinian microevolution approach and have taken what they call a macroevolution approach to this problem. Now this is a rather desperate expedient, to be sure, but it's typical of the dilemma that confronts modern scientists on this subject. For instance, Dr. Goldschmidt, a leading paleontologist at the University of California, suggested that the only solution to the problem is to imagine that a certain reptile laid some eggs out of which there hatched full-grown birds with feathers and flew away. Now this does solve some problems, but I would submit that it uh, raises some other ones too. Dr. Schindewolf of Europe, a leading paleontologist in the, on the continent, holds a similar view because, not because this view makes sense particularly, but because the other view is ridiculous. Now, of course, uh, Dobzhansky and Simpson and Mayer and other microevolutionists have vigorously attacked this theory, and rightfully so. Evolutionists today are fully occupied attacking the absurdities of each other's opinions. And the answer is this. All evolutionary views are absurd because the word of God has the only rational answer. And it's this. The birds did not come by gradual increase of potential wings on reptiles through millions of years. Neither did they hatch from the eggs of reptiles, but they were created by God, full-grown, ready to lay their own eggs. Have you heard of the old adage, the old question, which came first, the hen or the egg? Well, you know, the Bible has an answer to this, I feel. The hen came first, ready to lay her own eggs. And this makes great, great sense, especially in the atmosphere of biblical supernaturalism, which points to a creator God who is perfectly capable of doing such marvelous things. May I say this morning that true science is in harmony with Scripture. The Christian is not opposed to science. We rejoice and revel in the marvelous discoveries that God has permitted man in this 20th century to make in the natural world. We insist, however, that a certain theory of how the world began, which is claimed by many to be scientific, is not so. Dr. Henry M. Morris, head of the Civil Engineering Department at Virginia Polytechnic Institute, has written a very excellent volume entitled The Twilight of Evolution. The point of the title of this book is simply this. Evolution as a theory is now in its twilight phase. If it had ever any justification, it doesn't have any more now. As a science, it, it is increasingly evident that this theory does not fit the facts. Of course, Dr. Morris is very careful to point out in this book that the non-scientific character of evolution in itself is not a guarantee that it will be abandoned by modern man. But he is fully confident that the day will come, and that soon, when it will be abandoned on a universal scale 
when Jesus Christ comes back to this earth to establish his kingdom, because the word of God tells us that in that day, the knowledge of the Lord and of the word will cover the earth as the waters cover the sea. I'm fully confident this morning that in spite of the fantastic influence of the theory of evolution in our country, that it is indeed in its twilight phase. May we put our feet firmly upon the revealed word of God on the subject of creation of living things after their kind. There's a fifth area we would like to mention in which Genesis, as far as I'm concerned, is in serious conflict with evolutionary theory. And that has to do with the time required for living things in all their varieties to come into existence. Now, of course, the theory of evolution must have time. This is the magic word in evolutionary circles. Here's what I mean. If you confront an evolutionist with this kind of a question, which is a very legitimate one, if evolution is the key for the history of living things in this world, then why don't we see it happening today? Why are not apes here and there gradually becoming people, for example? Or why are not all kinds of things becoming other kinds of things? Why do we have such distinct types of creatures all reproducing after their kind according to Mendel's laws? His answer will probably be something like this. It's true that we can't demonstrate anywhere in the world today that anything is becoming anything else. But if you give us enough time, anything could have happened. And the evolutionist really feels more at home in the never-never land of hundreds of millions of years ago when no one, of course, can investigate. And we're in the fog of speculation. This is where the theory thrives best. But I would like to suggest that this really doesn't help at all. Time is not a dynamic for accomplishing anything. In other words, if the basic laws of genetics and biology today teach us that animals and plants are fixed, basically, in their types, according to the basic laws of nature, then multiplying this situation by time isn't going to change the laws at all. In other words, zero power multiplied by a billion years still equals zero effects. May I illustrate? If you saw a little boy trying to lift himself up in the air by his shoes, what would you think of an adult who came along and said to the young boy, don't give up, keep at it. What you really need is time. Why, this is not only ridiculous, but cruel. Why? Because this boy is contradicting one of the basic laws of nature, which he doesn't really understand yet. Our boys uh, have had some rather disastrous experiences tampering with the laws of nature, attempting to fly off of the roof of the house and a few other things, but we soon learn that uh, God's basic laws of nature don't change every other Thursday. And I would like to say that this is the fatal flaw in evolutionary theory. If it isn't happening today, 
and it can't happen today, such as spontaneous generation of life from non-life, then, dear friends, it didn't happen yesterday. And you can multiply your problem by all eternity, and you still get zero as far as evolution is concerned. Now, I believe that the book of Genesis really doesn't give us billions of years anyway for the bringing into existence of living things. I believe that Genesis teaches us that God in one week created this world. Peter says, Beloved, I would not have you to be ignorant of this one thing, that one day is with the Lord as a thousand years. God could accomplish in one day what a vast amount of time would be required, if ever, for natural processes to bring into existence. And the book of Genesis, it, to be sure, uses this word day in several senses. A 12-hour period, day and night. A 24-hour period, when it speaks about the seasons and days and years. And it speaks of an indefinite period of time also, I believe, in Genesis chapter 2, when it talks about the day in which God created the world. But in each case, the context shows us in which sense the word is used. And when the book of Genesis talks about the days of creation, it qualifies that phrase very carefully. In the six cases where the word appears in reference to the periods of creation, you find a number attached. Day one, day two, day five, day six. As far as I know, in the historical narrative of the Old Testament, never is the word day used with a numerical adjective that it doesn't mean a 24-hour period. So-and-so took a five-day journey. What else can this mean but five 24-hour periods? Secondly, in each case, the phrase evening and morning is attached, which is a technical Hebrew expression, apparently, for a 24-hour period, as can be seen in Daniel 8, 14, and 26, where it speaks of the 2,300 evenings and mornings, or 2,300 days. Thirdly, Exodus 20, 11 qualifies this expression in Genesis. God commanded his people Israel, six days shalt thou labor and do all thy work. Why? For in six days the Lord thy God created the heavens, the earth, the sea, and all that in them is. Now, to be sure, God could have created the world in six million or six billion years or six seconds for that matter. But why did he cho choose six days? I believe to serve as a pattern for man's cycle of work and rest. And no Hebrew ever interpreted those days in any other sense than the literal sense in the light of that commandment in Exodus chapter 20, verse 11. You say, well, this is too much for me to believe, that this vast, amazing world could have been spoken into existence by God in one week. Well, I have my problems, too, with this, dear friends, and here's why. This is the realm of miracle. And I would like to say that when I first came to know Jesus Christ as my Savior and had my eyes open for the first time to the amazing truth of this book, the Bible, I was a thoroughgoing evolutionist. I'd already spent one year in university. I'd taken courses in geology and paleontology. 
to me there wasn't any other view possible. I'd never heard of any other view, neither of most people. But then I began to learn, first through the miracle of regeneration, and then through the marvelous experience of comparing scripture with scripture, that God is capable of doing things that I had never dreamed possible. And if this is a problem for us, and I recognize it is, we're all basically evolutionists, uniformitarians, naturalists, we interpret everything in terms of our own experience. This is normal and natural, but it isn't biblical. I would like to suggest that we haven't really seen anything yet. The Apostle Paul said, Behold, I show you a mystery. We shall not all sleep the sleep of death, but we shall all be changed. And how long is that going to take? In a moment, the twinkling of an eye at the last trump, for the trumpet shall sound and the dead shall be raised incorruptible and we shall be changed. Talk about a change. This means nothing less than the resurrection of hundreds of millions of people who have been dead, buried, decomposed, returned to the dust in the ages that have passed since Jesus was here, all raised in glory with physical glorified bodies, perfect in a moment of time. And who's going to do this? Jesus Christ. He said in John 5, Marvel not at this, for the hour is coming in which all that are in the grave shall come forth. They that have done good to the resurrection of life, they that have done evil to the resurrection of condemnation. The point is this. Jesus Christ has power. He has it, dear friend. Every time he touches a darkened soul in the miracle of regeneration, his power is seen. Have you experienced that power? If Jesus Christ has transformed your life, and it only took a moment for old things to pass away and all things to become new, then you should have a very healthy respect for the power of Jesus Christ to raise the dead in a moment. And if Christ can raise the bodies of millions of people in a moment, I really don't think he had too much trouble raising one man out of the dust at the dawn of history or a few animals and plants. You see, the whole question revolves around this. Who is Jesus? What kind of power does he really have? What does the Bible actually say about his methods of doing things in the realm of miracle? And I may be wrong here, but I haven't found any miracle yet in the Bible that took a long time to accomplish. I haven't. The Apostle Peter put it this way, We have not followed cunningly devised fables when we made known unto you the power and the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. But we were eyewitnesses of his majesty. My personal prayer and ambition is to come to know more intimately and more perfectly the power of this person, that I might know him and the power of his resurrection, the fellowship of his sufferings. And to me, this lays a proper foundation upon which 
we may approach the first chapter of Genesis, which tells us of some of the amazing things that Jesus first did with regard to this world in which we live. But of course, Paul warned us of the fact that the time would come when vast numbers of people who even profess to be Christians will find these types of doctrines absolutely intolerable. You remember the passage, don't you, in 2 Timothy chapter 4, that the time will come, verse 3, when they will not endure sound doctrine. This shouldn't surprise us. But they, after their own lusts, shall heap to themselves teachers, the kind of teachers they want to have, because they have itching ears, and they shall turn away their ears from the truth and shall be turned unto fables. Am I misinterpreting this verse if I suggest that one of the greatest fables ever to be perpetrated upon the human race is the theory of total organic evolution? The Apostle Peter expresses the matter in these terms. 2 Peter chapter 3, verse 1. This second epistle, beloved, I now write unto you, in both which I stir up your pure minds by way of remembrance, that ye may be mindful of the words which were spoken before by the holy prophets, this includes Moses, and of the commandment of us, the apostles of the Lord and Savior, knowing this first, that there shall come in the last days scoffers walking after their own lusts. That means characterized basically by self-interest and their own plans and ambitions apart from the will of God. Who will say, now note this, where is the promise of his coming? For since the fathers fell asleep, all things have continued as they were since the beginning of the creation. In other words, there can't be any supernaturalism. God will never directly intervene into the affairs of this world by miracle. Therefore, there can't be any literal second coming. Now, these aren't statements uttered by pagans. They've never heard of the second coming, therefore they can't deny it. You can't deny or reject something you've never heard of. These are denials that will characterize increasingly the Christian world, church-related schools, denominations that have the name of Christian. Such people will say, in effect, it is no longer scientifically respectable to take seriously the second coming of Christ as a literal, catastrophic, universally significant event. Why? Because science tells us that all things have continued as they were from the beginning, and they always will. This, of course, is simply the uniformity principle of nature applied to religion. The Apostle Peter, of course, has an answer to this, and it's this. This they willingly are ignorant of. They don't have to be ignorant of the basic truths on this subject. The facts are available for those who have the eyes and the heart to see them. And what are the facts? First of all, biblical facts, namely Genesis. Now here Peter appeals to the book of Genesis, the creation account, 
and then to the doctrine of the flood to show that this world can only be explained by miracle. Notice, this they willingly are ignorant of, that by the word of God the heavens were of old, and the earth standing out of the water and in the water. Now this is the first chapter of Genesis. God's word brought the world into existence. And when men and air-breathing creatures found themselves upon the continents, they noticed that the continents were surrounded by oceans, and furthermore, that above them was a vast canopy of water, a vast ocean, which God on the second day of creation, you remember, divided from earth waters and lifted above the firmament or the expanse, so that the continents were actually surrounded by water everywhere, on earth and above. And it was by means of these waters, these oceans, you see, that the world that then was being overflowed with water perished. The world began by a miracle, and it was destroyed by a miracle. Peter says, therefore, it is utterly false to insist that all things have continued as they were from the beginning. All things have not continued as they were. God has intervened. God has controlled this world from its beginning and has revealed his sovereignty and his power over it. Now, it's exactly here, you see, that the Christian, who is aware of some of the scientific attitudes of our day, faces a very serious dilemma, and it's this. Am I going to allow the clear statements of the word of God to be my guide, to be the control for my worldview and my thinking on scientific matters with regard to supernatural creation and supernatural catastrophe as the key to unlock the mysteries of earth history? Many Christians have not made that decision, dear friends. They have, and I feel I understand some of the problems having gone through this myself, they feel that the overwhelming accumulation of scientific evidence makes it impossible to think in terms of the kind of a flood that Genesis speaks of and to which Peter appeals, namely a worldwide catastrophe. Because that's the kind of a catastrophe Peter is talking about here as an analogy for the coming worldwide catastrophe that will characterize and accompany the second coming of Christ to this world, whereby the nations of this earth will be destroyed and only those who come to terms with Jesus Christ will enter his kingdom, speak about a universal catastrophe. That's what the second coming will be. Psalm 2 break them with a rod of iron, dash them in pieces like a potter's vessel. Daniel 2, stone cut out without hands that will destroy the image and pulverize it, world dominion. Matthew 24 and 25, sheep and goat nations brought before Jesus, the judge. Revelation 19, the sword, the two-edged sword from the mouth of him who comes from heaven to smite the nations. This is universal catastrophe. And the only adequate analogy for that coming judgment of the world is the flood of Noah's day. Dare we take this seriously? 
It is perfectly true, as geologists tell us, that there is no known mechanism or force in the crust of our planet capable of pushing oceans over the continents and covering the highest mountains with water. I agree. But you see, the book of Genesis does not say that a mere chance combination of circumstances in the natural forces and processes of this earth brought the flood. That's exactly what the flood was not. What was the flood? It was basically a miracle. Consider with me now, please, Genesis chapter 7, verse 11. And let us see whether Genesis does not give us a little hint as to the basic mechanism employed by God in accomplishing this worldwide destruction. Here's the key verse, Genesis 7:11. Note carefully the supernatural origin of this flood. In the 600th year of Noah's life, in the second month, the 17th day of the month, the same day were all the fountains of the great deep broken up. All in one day, all the great ocean basins broken up by gigantic volcanic seismic upheavals, and the windows of heaven were opened, and the rain was upon the earth 40 days and 40 nights. Now, you just can't have that kind of a rain today, you see, because if all the water vapor and moisture in the atmosphere were condensed and all the clouds fell to earth in the form of rain, you'd have a flood one inch deep and it would be over within an hour if it rained everywhere in the world at once. But you see, this universal downpour continued without interruption day and night for six weeks and was nothing less than the emptying out of the vast upper ocean lifted by God into the sky on the second day of creation, a merging of two universal oceans for the destruction of the world. Drastic measures employed by God at the dawn of history in order to crush the blasphemous rebellion of sinful man whose thoughts were only evil continually. Drastic measures, supernatural means to accomplish the vindication of God's holiness and sovereignty at the very beginning of history. Notice the effects, however, of this supernaturally initiated deluge. Verses 17 to 20 could hardly be clearer. This was not a mere local flood, an accidental uh, shifting of the Earth's crust in the Mesopotamian Valley. No, this flood covered the world. Genesis 7, verse 17, and the flood was 40 days upon the earth, that is, in attaining its maximum depth. And the waters increased and bare up the ark, and it was lift up above the earth. And the waters prevailed. That means they proved irresistible. And they were increased greatly upon the earth. And the ark went upon the face of the waters. And the waters prevailed exceedingly upon the earth. And all the high hills that were under the whole heaven were covered. Now, this isn't simply Moses' opinion of the situation. Even if it was, it would be perfectly clear that Moses was capable of analyzing the magnitude of the flood of which he was a part, having had 500 years of experience in the world and knowing very 
a great deal about mountains and so forth, but this is God's explanation, you see. All the high hills that were under the whole heaven were covered. Fifteen cubits upward did the waters prevail, and the mountains were covered. Now, to me, it is ridiculous to talk about a year-long, mountain-covering, local flood. Floods must seek their own level by the force of gravity. And the Bible, to me, makes it absolutely clear that this flood covered the world. If we suddenly receive news that Mount McKinley in Alaska was last seen covered by a mysterious flood of water, we would do well to flee to higher ground, wherever that might be. You see, this is God's way of saying the flood was universal in its extent. And of course, all questions are settled, I believe, by this statement in verse 20. Fifteen cubits upward did the waters prevail, and the mountains were covered. Why fifteen cubits? This was half the height of Noah's ark. And Noah's ark, when fully laden with its cargo, presumably sank half its height into the water. It had a draft of 15 cubits. And in order for the ark to be protected from destruction during the year that it floated back and forth across the waters of this shoreless ocean, God saw to it that the very highest peak in the world was covered by a depth of at least 15 cubits in order that the ark might not be destroyed. Not one square foot of this world was covered by less than 22 feet of water, therefore sufficient to destroy all air-breathing creatures, men and animals, in the world of that day. These are amazing things to think about. May God help us to come to terms with God's interpretation of earth history. You've been listening to the Today in the Word radio podcast and one of five messages John Whitcomb Jr. presented at Winona Lake Bible Conference 1966. John Whitcomb Jr. was a professor of Old Testament at Grace Theological Seminary. Audio copies of this and many other messages from the podcast are available at moodyaudio.com. Today in the Word Radio is a production of Moody Radio, a ministry of the Moody Bible Institute.